Gavin, how are you? Hello, I'm hey. good, thanks. Yeah, I'm good. What's the big business in Swindon? Financial services, although I might be about 20 years out of date there. No, that um, sounds I mean, it was, obviously, it was originally a railway town in the Victorian era in the early 20th century. And then when did it um, when I think did it, it did swim? a very good job of kind of um, transitioning out of that and opening up to, to new industries and businesses in the sort of 60s and 70s. Of course, because um, it's not far from Yeah, home. to be honest, nowadays, it's, yeah, it's kind of probably services in, service industries along the M4 and stuff like that. Yeah. But unfortunately, it's the kind of place where people get out of. But when did you get out? I'm showing my age now. I went to university in 1994 and I went to university in Staffordshire in Stoke-on-Trent. By the time I graduated, my parents had moved to, to Bournemouth. So they kind of um, left me with, left me with no, nowhere in Wiltshire to return to. So I guess the, that was the last time I lived, lived in Wiltshire permanently. It was in the mid-90s. But when I left, I probably didn't realise it was... It was going to be such a long time away. I spoke to John Bruin, and he went yeah. to university in Sheffield in the mid-90s. He was more of a right. a, a house uh, music fan. Were you more guitar rock or dance music at university? Uh, yeah, more guitar rock, in, indie, I guess you'd say, yeah. Who passed yeah, through? Which was like, I mean, we used to go up to Manchester and Liverpool, and there were some good places in Stoke as well. Who did you see? I remember, actually, having said it, it was more guitar music, I remember we saw the Prodigy come to Staffs Uni a couple of times just before they were particularly big, but when they kind of had all the tunes that went on to be really iconic, and that was great. Yeah, what was it like hearing uh, Firestarter for the first time? It was quite amusing. I remember I was with my, with my girlfriend, and we were quite in the front, and we were more concerned about avoiding whatever was coming out of Keith Flynn's mouth, land, landing on the first, first three or four rows of the audience than what he was actually singing. Because he was kind of in full sort of punk mode, just like taking sips of a drink and then spitting it over everybody. And uh, yeah, it was a good night. It was a good night. It was, it was interesting. I remember going to Glastonbury that year as well and famously when, when Pulp headlined instead of the Stone Roses. And funnily enough, I was talking about that the other day and it's what turned out to be one of these iconic performances. And for me, it's one of those classic things. I was there, but I've got absolutely no recollection about it, which I guess means I probably enjoyed it. But um, Yes, perhaps you were sorted yeah. for ease and whiz, but don't tell your parents. I think I, think, I think I might have been sorted for something the night before, and by that day, I was probably, yeah, past my best, possibly, yeah. Do you, yeah. Do you talk about uh, 90s independent rock and British dance music with fellow Metro columnist Colin Murray? Uh, I have done, yes, yeah, very much so, yeah. I can't think of any specific anecdotes, but it's definitely come up. Yeah, Colin yeah is... you obviously used to DJ on Radio 1. Yeah, Colin is brilliant. He's currently on Five Live doing the post-football slot. But Colin's column, yeah. I always read uh, when I was commuting. Do you remember commuting? Uh, sorry, I shouldn't rub it I in. I do, I do, yeah. I shouldn't rub it in. Um, have you been working <laughs> from home for the last year? We We have. We went back briefly into the office from about... Uh, well, I went back in early September, I think, and that lasted till end of November, but only a couple of days a week. So, yeah, I'd say ninety percent for the last year we've been we've been working from home. I interviewed yeah. for a job at the newspaper that you are assistant sport editor at. It's one of the big buildings in Kensington, the Mail Group. That's right. And yeah. I went in and did a subtest and answered and interview questions, and I didn't even get a rejection. And if I did, it didn't get to the right email address. So, as far as I know, I was hired, but I just didn't get... I can only apologise on, on, on your behalf. I think you probably agree. Um, it, it is one of those industries. I always say I've, I've, never, I've never got a job I've applied for in journalism. I, I applied for plenty back in the day, and I, and I never... I don't think I ever got an interview, to be honest, but mm. every job I ever got was 
you know, somebody had seen something I'd done elsewhere or infamous industry for that kind of yeah, that I wish, kind of employment. I, I wish I'd well my my grandma's cousin Ivor accompanied the Beatles on their American tour in nineteen sixty four. So I have journalists in the family, but plenty more yeah. are tailors, accountants, mum's a teacher now. Um so what right. advice? When when people say, Well, I want to be the assistant sport editor at the Metro when you move on, although you've been there for over fifteen years, so don't count on it. <laughs> Is the yeah, is the job just about contacts and doing it on your own speed? Um, it's a difficult one to answer because, like I say, it, it does it kind of does smell a bit of nepotism. But I think it's more, you know, if you're if you're looking for somebody and you and you and you, you know you know somebody's capabilities, you're probably more likely to to approach them than than somebody than somebody you know less about. But um, you know, you, you've got to really enjoy what you're writing about for me in our kind of job, you know. And, find it a, a, to be a passion rather than a chore, I'd say. I don't envy people coming into, into the industry now. I think they probably have to work a lot harder than than I did back in the day, you know, when I maybe, maybe I didn't, maybe it felt like I just fell into it. Maybe I did work hard and kind of didn't realise. But uh, I think nowadays people, you know, you have to be super organised with your kind of uh, building up a portfolio when you're at university and that kind of stuff. And there are so many ways to fall into football um, football, but also sports writing. David Conn was a lawyer, as well as Daniel Harris. Um, Barney Rone worked in some offices and then has become what he did. Johnny Lou actually went to Edinburgh University. And I actually got, I watched the SJAs this week. And um, my heart leapt when Johnny Lou won the award. I went, oh my God. Because I know Johnny, I don't know him very well, but I know him when he was writing pieces for the Edinburgh student. And 15 years right. later, to have him effectively become an elite sports writer. I imagine you read yeah. Johnny Liu's work in The Guardian, as you had. With yeah, Philadelphia absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan. Do you wish and, and of course, he's managed to conquer the world of game shows as well, hasn't he? Uh, yes, he is an octo-champ <laughs> at Countdown. Yes. <laughs> exactly, yeah. The man of many, many talents. So many talents. Yeah, Henry Winter hasn't done that. Um, who are the well, people... No. Um, because every week I tend to read Jonathan Wilson, David Squire's cartoons. I, when yeah. I get hold of a mail paper, I always read Ollie Holt on Sundays. So who are your main go-to writers? Um, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Jonathan Liu, Daniel Taylor. Um, uh, as you mentioned, David Conn. I think Paul Hayward as well. I've always loved. Going back a bit more, I always used to love reading Hugh McIlvenny. I, I always love reading Vic Marks on cricket. I think he's... He's a great writer and a great broadcaster. Well, I, I didn't want to do a journalism degree. I got to the shortlist of a job at a major broadsheet newspaper and it went to the right candidate. But I've met right. a lot of journalists and I've spoken to one professional. I've just spoken to Ricky Hill for two and a half hours uh, and over a hundred writers and critics and fans, but never to a Swindon Town fan. I have corresponded with David Squires, who's down in Australia, uh, I yeah. wanted Ivo Graham, but I think he's busy uh, on paternity at the moment. So <laughs> when it comes to Swindon Town fans, it's you three, isn't it? Or am I missing anyone? Is there a, um, isn't there a pop star as a Swindon fan? Oh, I don't know if she's a Swindon fan, a pop star. Mark Lamar's from Swindon. I'm not sure he's ever expressed any great love for the football team. <laughs> uh, Billy Piper, Melinda Messenger. Again, I'm not sure that they've necessarily put the hard yards in on in the town end or anything like that. Do you know what? So, I would love to speak to Billy yeah, Piper yeah, no, about Lawrence Fox. 
Whatever's going on with Lawrence Fox, Billy yeah. Piper knows exactly what he's doing. I'm sure, I'm sure you yeah, joined the queue on that one. Yeah. Yeah. So we will talk about Swindon for the next hour. Swindon Town, at the moment, uh, have a former manager as its chairman. There's only one place to start. What was your reaction mm-hmm. when Lee Power gave himself the job? Um, well, I, I, I should probably prefix this by saying I'm, I'm not a massive details man, so there are people who know far, far more about his background, uh, away from his playing background, his kind of financial background and his suitability or unsuitability for the job. So I, I wouldn't like to comment too specifically on, on whether he was a great fit or a bad fit. I think at the time we were owned by, by a guy who bought the club for a pound but probably only had 50p in the bank. Mm. And then Lee Power came in to, to kind of give him a bit of financial help and then eventually took over. So at that point, my reaction was probably just, well, if somebody's keeping the club afloat, that, that can only be a good thing. But that was, I don't know how, what we're talking, probably seven, eight years yep. ago now. After after Mark Cooper went and yeah. before Martin so, yes, yes. So, so Lee, Lee Power was never, was never the manager. No, yes, he's been the owner. Mark, Mark Cooper would have been his first manager probably. I just think that they, they've suffered from lack of investment and many would argue lack of ambition under his reign. It's always been slightly suspicious what his motives are, whether whether he's looking for a quick buck by selling the club or trying to get a new ground bill or sell the training ground, or all the usual kind of tropes that you hear with lower league football club owners. So initially, like I said, I think I was probably just glad that somebody had kept the club afloat. And yeah, increasingly, like most people, I think I've become frustrated with the direction it's going in, really. But for the grace of Gino Pozzo, Watford would still be owned by Stanmore businessman Lawrence Bazzini, Bassini, uh, who went bankrupt and yes. changed his name for legal reasons. He's now, you, you know the story about him. But He's the guy who's tried to buy about four or five yep. clubs since, hasn't he? Yep, yep. And every time he comes up... Uh, Watford fans pop up and say, ah, well, did you know this? The, and they send yeah. the picture of the hard hat. Uh, but I don't know I don't know very much about Swindon Town other than they were one of the clubs who enjoyed in that odd wilderness period when you were um, in sixth form in university, that period between yeah. a whole new ball game and the Bosman ruling. And I'd love to talk about that because that was Swindon's last phenomenal success, promoted to the Premier yeah. League. Under Glenda. Did you call him Glenda or was he Glenn at that time? Uh, he was God. I think he was God to us, yeah. No, I mean, I, I was the perfect age for that because ultimately what Glenn Hoddle achieved was the culmination of an eight-year process that began under Lou Macari in the mid-80s. So when Lou Macari took over in 1984, so in the fourth division, very poor team, very poor crowds, probably two or 3,000. And he actually... He left um, in his first season. I don't think he was sacked. I think I think he chose to leave, but it was a kind of power struggle. And then the, the club persuaded him to come back in 1985. This was 84-85 season. Um, and then in the 85-86 season, pretty much from nowhere, he led Swindon to the fourth division title with a record points, points tally at the time of 102 points. That would have been my... I was 10 that year, I think. So that would have been my second to last year of primary school. Certainly the first year that I, I went to Swindon regularly, my dad started taking me. So my first real experience of watching football every Saturday, every other Saturday, every other Tuesday, was glory. You know, was winning a title. And then the second season, we went up again from the third division via the playoffs. Back in those days, it was when the playoffs didn't have a final at Wembley. Yeah, I learned about this from, from Rich Foster. Was it Manchester or was it home and away? 
it was home and away. So we played Gillingham in the final, but it went to a third game because for, for some reason they didn't bother with away goals or penalties. So it was, I think we maybe lost the away leg and won the home leg. And then had a third game at Selhurst Park because that was seemed to be kind of equidistant between Gillingham and Swindon on a Friday night in 1987 and we beat Gillingham 2-0 so we went up to the second division mm-hmm. so you know that was kind of back-to-back glory and then we had a, a decent spell consolidating Makari left for um, West Ham I think uh, and then we replaced Lou Makari with Ozzy Ardiles as you do you know what, who else would you get in another uh, what, very what? sort of you know, famous first division player came in as player manager what first attracted Ozzy Ardiles to the contract that he got given at Swindon this is a very good question. This is a very good question, which I'm sure, I'm sure we'll, we'll come on to the subject you're alluding to. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. We will come on to it later. Let's do the on the pitch stuff first. So, Ozzy yeah, yeah, so, comes so in. Ozzy came in, and, and then he led us to promotion at Wembley in 1990 into the, into the first division, as was the Premier League now. Um, which, of course, we never we never got to take our place because of the aforementioned financial issues. Uh, had a season of struggle. He left, and then yeah, Glenn Hoddle took over. 91, I think. Yep. Finished probably, I think, eighth in his first full season and then went up via the playoffs in his second. So I guess the point I'm making is we were in the fourth division when I was 10. And when I turned 18, we were just kicking off in the Premier League. So it was kind of halcyon days. You know, my childhood sort of took us through that process of, of you know, fourth division minnows to the big time. And, um, yeah, the, the, the season in the Premier League was kind of, I was the right age to have, Certainly not. I wasn't clever enough to drive, but friends who had driving licenses and you know cheap old bangers. So we'd go on away days to Liverpool, Everton, Sheffield United, you know, everywhere really. And we finished bottom of the table and were relegated easily. But it, it, it didn't really matter because it was just such a great year and such a great age to experience that. Yeah, I spoke to Ian McMillan, who um, has written a book of poetry about the Barnsley one and done season but yeah. 92-3 that was when Michael Cox points out that football changed and it was with yeah. the rule that so the 1990 World Cup was dull as ditch water and it was changed yeah. FIFA wanted to change the rules was football changed for the better with the abolition of picking up at the back pass <laughs> um I think it depends whether you're a Liverpool fan or not, how you answer that question. <laughs> it's certainly, I work with a colleague who is convinced that that's what ended Liverpool's dominance of Probably the first right. division was, was when, they were, when they were no longer able to pass it back. And I do, I do remember that actually the first game when that became a rule at Swindon and, and the ball went back to the keeper and everybody was like, oh, no, go pick it up, let's pick it up. Yeah, um, <laughs> I don't know, to be honest. I think, I think the game's changed so much with them, starting with that and since. It's just such a faster game nowadays, isn't it? Yeah, the tackle no from behind was outlawed. Freedom of player movement. Just talking to Ricky Hill yeah. before I spoke to you, he was actually involved in yeah. a proto-Bosman case, as I'm sure a lot of players were, where he didn't want to yeah. play for the club, the chairman didn't want him to play, and yet there, was, there were contractual obligations to mm. take precedence. Um, so over the last... Uh, 20 years or so. Uh, I'm just going to read out and you can either pass or say something about the managers who managed Swindon since Glenn Hoddle. We start with John Uh, Gorman, who was obviously Hoddle's assistant. Yeah, John Gorman was, I think, universally recognised just to be one of the nicest men you could ever meet. Um, That sounds like I'm I'm damning him with faint praise. Maybe I am, but um, 
he, he was a great, I think he was a great guy. No, no, no Swindon fans have got a bad word to say about him. And he was dealt a bit of a rough hand because Hoddle obviously left, but so did, so did a couple of our best players. And he was always going to be a really, really tough task to, to keep us up. So John Gorman, thumbs up from me. Mm-hmm. Steve McMahon. In very the good field. player, very belligerent manager. We always felt like um, anybody that he brought in was fantastic for a for about six months until he fell out with them and then had to replace them with somebody else. He, yeah, he, was, he he managed like he played, let's, let's put it that way. And oh, right. It you... just wasn't built for long-term success because the turnover of players and the, the fallouts with players just, just wasn't sustainable. Ah, maybe he taught Jose, Jose Mourinho something. It could be, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then some, of, some fine British managers, Quinn, Todd, and then twice King. I know nothing yeah, about any so, No, well, Jimmy Quinn, Jimmy Quinn was a, a club legend. I think he played for Swindon. Before he managed us, he played for us at least twice. Uh, in what, two spells, I mean. And I think he I think he even turned out for us when he was manager, even though he was probably 40 by then. But we were a poor team with a very, very poor budget when he was in charge. So I don't think he did a great job, but I don't think he had much of a chance. Colin Todd was only there for about six weeks, I think, possibly. And then he left... Uh, to go somewhere else. Andy King was his assistant, took over. Great wheeler dealer, fantastic team builder. Possibly questionable in the coaching department, but just kind of had that bit of magic about him, a bit of a glint in the eye. A lot of the ex-players who played for him tell fantastic stories about his man management and kind of anecdotes just about, you know, cigars in the dressing room and all this. Yeah, man built a really good good team, bought some good players like Sam Parkin. Um, yeah, so Andy King, good fun. Frustrating mm-hmm. at times, but looking back, to be honest, he's probably one of the best ones we've had in the last 20 years. I just note that the, the pivot in your midfield was someone who... I mean, Kevin Horlock could not play in the elite division today. Kevin Horlock would be brilliant for a League One Swindon side. But in 92, oh, yeah, 93, he was probably the chap who represented Steve McMahon on earth. Yeah, he was 1903. I think he didn't... Horlock was kind of a player coming through then, and I'm not sure he played too much in, until the following season or, or sort of more to the mid-90s. But that, that 92-93, we had Mickey Hazard, Martin Ling and John Moncur, which was just an insane mm. midfield of kind of ball-playing midfielders and then Hoddle at sweeper. It was just ridiculous, yeah. But Horlock, yeah, lovely left foot, Kevin Horlock. That's what, yeah, you, I was going to mention Hoddle as the sweeper because this was a position that existed... Maybe it tied it over that era, as I've said, the beautiful game to the Bosman yeah. era. It was a, a, a kind of a pivot who was playing behind the defence. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. I mean, you mentioned Italian 90. I think a lot of teams came out of Italian 90 and thought, yeah, we need to play, play a sweeper. Because I think England adapted to five at the back during the tournament. But nobody really played with... Playing with three centre-halves so isn't the same as playing with a sweeper. You know, a lot of teams just lined up with three pretty big cloggers, but we we had pro- two proper defenders in Colin Calderwood and Sean Taylor doing the actual defending. And then when they won the ball or intercepted the ball or second balls came down, Glenn Hodder would just take it from there. Just take He wouldn't do a lot of defending, but he'd just take the ball off them anywhere on the pitch, even in our own area, on the edge of the area, and just build the play from there. And just, yeah, just such a pleasure to watch. You know, our dealers and Mark Macari were player managers as well, but they... They played very rarely and were clearly, you know, long past their best. But Hoddle was the best player on the pitch in pretty much every game he played in that promotion season. He, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure about my facts, but I'd be very surprised if 
if there was a player of the year award for that division that year and he didn't win it because he was incredible. Little, well, he's known as the guy who invented the love train uh, on TV commentary. I know you, do you watch, are you the That's one who right. watches, watches a lot of football on the TV or is that your colleague? Uh, Jack Fox writes about it. Of course, Jack Fox yeah. in the box, yeah. Um, yeah. So he would have written about um, Glenn Hoddle and it, this now explains why I watched Colin Calderwood as a young Tottenham fan I'm Watford now but I used to go to White Hart Lane oh, I used to go to Tottenham yeah yeah Colin Calderwood yeah well, Colin was um, he, he played for Swindon like I said that era basically played for my entire childhood I think he joined them when I was about nine and well, you know to me he seemed ancient when he went to Tottenham but he was probably only about 28 hmm. he, I'd imagine for Tottenham he probably didn't stand out as a particularly fantastic defender but, but for a kind of more modest club like ourselves he was Absolute legend. He was captain for yeah the whole time he was there. I think. Wow, that well, that's an incredible signing. Because if you sign the Swindon captain and stick him next to Sol Campbell, you've got a defence yeah. who should do really, really well. Well, this is also yeah, and I love this one. I talk about John Gorman being that summer as well. So we went into the Premier League without our sweeper and without our best best defender, really. So. Yeah. And it's Pretty nice tough. to know um, Nicky Summerby was there. Have you read that book about Mike and Nicky Summerby? Colin Schindler's book. It's called Like Father, Like Son. Okay, no, I'll have to check that out. I've read, I've read other Colin Schindler books. I've not seen that ridiculously. Hmm. Uh, Nicky Summerby, a very flying winger like Beckham, yeah. and certainly very well um, remembered in the nineties. Could you tell? Yeah, he, he played was... wing back. Oh, he played wing back. Okay. Um, yeah, well, yeah, just in that formation, he was yeah, he was a winger absolutely. But yeah, he played wing back, and we used to stand on the old Trivenham Road terrace. Uh, which was on the side of the ground, and he, you know, you feel like you're on top of him. He was right there in front of you, and yeah, just used to shuffle past fullbacks. You know, he wasn't particularly pacey, but he just could always beat his man and then just swing in these fantastic crosses. Mm. And what were you doing while Andy King was wheeling and a dealing? Because you'd graduated from staffs. Uh, did you go into a local uh, paper? Yeah, so sure, yeah, around that period, well, late nineties, I, I did a few different jobs uh, in journalism, mainly with various websites which are no longer with us. <laughs> uh, I, I lived in Spain for a year, okay. um, in Madrid, uh, and then came back, and by then I think I was working for Teletext on the so sports pages. I would have seen your work. On Teletext? For sure I would have. I, I remember John <laughs> Earls with the music, but I was glued every, yeah, every, right. yeah. every day. Yeah, that's right, Yeah. Every day. Have you spoken to John Earls about Luton? Uh, I should have really spoken to him about Ricky Hill, but um, I was going to say you, you, you've got Ricky Hill for Luton. Yeah, yeah. and I, I love what John does. He goes, "Football is brilliant. Football is awful. Whenever <laughs> Luton right. win or lose, uh, John Els is brilliant." Yeah, so John absolutely. was working on the music, and you were working on the sport. Yes, yeah. Although John John Els was very much he he was a name brand, if you like. I, I was just well, we we didn't really have any. We were just writing the match reports, writing the news, just, yeah, getting the job done, really. Yeah, so I, yeah. you wouldn't have been bylined, but I would have read your, yeah, 316, 303. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. 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 I might have had the odd byline on your Euro 2004 squad profiles or something like that. But yeah. Wow, no, I think I'd moved on to internet by then, but that, again. Uh, yeah, I think most people had, to be honest. <laughs> but you could see that, could you see that, and obviously the, the BBC had the red button, which was teletext mm. on screen. But no, I teletext remember my screen, yeah. my bemitzvah. My bemitzvah was March the tenth, twenty oh one. Easy to remember. Oh. But this was the Roy Essando day. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That reminds me of um the, 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 the funny thing working for teletext was you'd always have this kind of little inter rivalry with C facts. 
Oh. And the Roy Roy Essendon thing was a, a case in point where um, who was the wicker manager? It was Laurie oh, Sanchez, wasn't it? Oh, it was Laurie Sanchez. Yeah. And he was asked. He was asked after the game, you know. So this striker, where did you find him? And he said, "Well, we put out an advert on Teletext." So that was, you know, manner from heaven for us. What a what a great soundbite! I think we had it on a poster as a quote. But then, of course, CFAX would always kind of say, "Well, no, he meant CFAX. It's just generically called it Teletext." And then there'd be other examples when they'd say, "See, you know, I think mean, Gordon Strachan was manager of Southampton, and he said, I 'I can't wait to.'" We're top of the table. I can't wait to look at the league table on CFAX tonight. <laughs> and we'd be no, why didn't you say Tallytax Gordon? And, you know, ridiculous things like that, yeah. It was, and I think somebody was charged with phoning up Wickham and saying, was was it on Tallytax or was it CFAX? Well, you know what? We need accuracy here. Where did he see the... Yes, exactly, yes. Proper W1A. I remember reading David Winner's book, Stillness <laughs> and Speed, and there's a, a section when Dennis Burkham signs for Arsenal and he finds out about it on... Teletext, because this was 1995, so it would have been Teletext. Yeah. Gosh, uh, children who are listening to this, Swindon fans who are children, won't know, but I, wow. I envisage Ivo Graham will do a five-minute bit all about the wonders of seeing Swindon Town, seeing the name Fjortoft on page 316. That was my... Tr- no, he wouldn't have been, because he was far too young. Uh, Fjortoft is, um, <laughs> would you say, um, alongside Hoddle and Ardiles, Fjortoft is one of the three... Best players, not called Harry Abe Morris, to have played for Swindon. Harry Abe Morris, yeah, cool. I wish I'd seen him play. Yeah, yeah yes and no. Like, Jan was, yeah, definitely one of the best players. He actually had a very strange season, which Swindon fans are all too familiar with, but possibly the wider world, not so much. Um, he was a flop, essentially. He was signing, he was our big signing in the Premier League. God, I can't believe I just said that. He's going to kill me. But. Um, <laughs> We, we signed him for half a million pounds to score the goals that would keep us in the Premier League. Uh, and he didn't score until January, I think it was. Um, he literally didn't score in his first probably 20 games and he was out of the team. Uh, and they were going to send him out on loan. I think he was going to go on loan somewhere back in Norway. And they played him in a third round cup tie at Ipswich, basically because they were playing a weakened team, resting a few players, concentrating on the league, etc. And he scored. I think he might have scored a couple, and that broke his duck. And then he didn't stop scoring. And he finished the season with 10 or, 10 or 12 goals in the league, I think, you know, over the last 15, 20 games. It was a very impressive strike rate. But we, we got relegated, so it kind of... There was that sort of bittersweet thing where, you know, he was brilliant and he was very charismatic and had the iconic celebration. And we all loved him, but, guy, you just wish maybe he'd found his feet a little bit sooner. And then the following season, he was fantastic. Scored scored loads and loads of goals. Maybe but got himself a move to Middlesbrough and and got to the worst transfer deadline ever. We here's a player you might remember being a Watford fan. We sold Yanard Fjortoft and replaced him with Jason Drysdale, Ooh. the uh, former Watford left back. Yeah. He wasn't wasn't even a striker, but that was that was what we spent the money on. So yeah, Yan was fantastic, but it, but it was kind of. He was a great player and a team going in the other direction, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't yeah. part of a great team. Let me let's put it that way. Yeah, no, that's a real shame. Um, I mentioned Harry yeah. Abe Morris. Um, Fjortoft hit Morris heights by scoring all those goals. I love how uh, Morris scored. This was the 20s and 30s, so in black and white. Yeah. 229 goals. Is Harry Morris celebrated at the county ground? He, he certainly is. Um this is this is probably a chat we should have on another day, but um, I mean, I, 
I'm actually I'm trying to do a bit of research into him because, and, and maybe take it somewhere because I think he's a an, an under-celebrated guy, really. Not just swinging. I think he's got an incredible story away from football. But you don't kind of hear his name as Harold Fleming was slightly before Harry Morris, uh, even earlier in the 20th century, and he played for England, and he's got. Uh, in Swindon circles, but possibly not quite as much as Harold Fleming. I think Harold Fleming is the kind of the iconic name from that era, whereas Morris scored a lot more goals, definitely. But just unbelievable goal ratio in seven seasons. Yeah, he's practically and, one and he wasn't young when he joined Swindon. I think he was in his... Well, he wasn't old, but he was in his mid to late 20s. And he'd been at three or four clubs and not shown any signs of, of that kind of, you know, prolific goal scoring until he came to Swindon. Well, while we're on the 20th century, uh, have you heard tell of the League Cup win of 1969? Did you celebrate the golden anniversary a couple of years ago? Um, I did. I, I certainly did. I, I certainly watched along to the uh, the live runner, I think they did, on the on the club Twitter, yeah. Uh, I certainly sung the famous song about 1969 on League Cup final day many times. Uh, mm. yeah, my, yeah, my mum went to the game, my dad... My dad was in hospital, so he'd, he had a ticket, but he never got to go, which was to his great disappointment. But yeah, it's, it's you know, no, no Swindon fan doesn't doesn't have a story about that day, even if they're too young to have been there themselves. Definitely. Did you say it was Wembley? Yeah, Wembley. Yeah. That's cool. I, I wasn't sure if the League Cup final took place at Wembley in those days because it was. The yeah, no, 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 it was Wembley. Yeah, Swindon played three times at the old Wembley Stadium and won every time. We've played three times at the new one and never won. But yeah. I saw a picture of the old Wembley. In fact, there's one in Ricky Hill's book. It's getting a lot of airtime, Ricky Hill. But but yes, the League Cup was won. Uh, and then something called yeah. the Anglo-Italian Cup existed. Absolutely. And um, yeah. famous semi-final win. Uh, have you been able to gather people's recollections from the, the semi-final, in particular the final? Do you know what? No, I wouldn't say first-hand recollections, no. I mean, I kind of know the stories about... Yeah, I think, did we play Roma? Fabio Capello was playing for Roma. And then there's the famous game, the final against Napoli, that was abandoned because the Napoli fans were throwing lumps of concrete on the pitch and what have you. But no, not, not kind of first-hand recollections, to be honest. Right. No, no there's, a, there's a lot of and what have you in that era. Uh, was Swindon beset... Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Was Swindon beset by hooliganism before all-seater stadia put a stop to it? Um, no, I don't, I don't think to any terrible degree. You know, not, like you said, there was a lot of that around, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I remember my childhood going to games and don't particularly remember it being a massive issue, certainly at home games and even at away games. I don't think Swindon were the kind of club that people were particularly in, in the mood to get to get, to get get riled up about, you know? Uh, no, unless you're one of those university towns beginning with an O that I'm not mentioning. Exactly. Who, who weirdly, weirdly were quite good in the late 80s, so we never particularly played that often, so... Yeah, that was a kind of strange period where I knew that we we weren't meant to like Oxford, but I never we never actually saw them until the sort of early nineties. But then, yeah, those games were always on the pitch as much as off it, but were very very fractious. Yeah, uh, I'll I'll hold off on what I was going to say uh, and just talk about Chris Kamara, who was before your time, but. Uh, Chris Kamara has some tales to tell about his time at Swindon, more about dietary requirements and bants. Yeah. He was, a, a, a very young captain, and B, Swindon's first black player. Yes. Well, yeah, I don't remember his first spell, as you as say, but he came back to Swindon in the Macari era. 
um, and played for us again then. And yeah, I actually met him uh, when I was about eleven or twelve. He was in. It was the playoff I was telling you about when they played Gillingham. He mm-hmm. got injured. I think he hurt his hip, and he was in hospital for a couple of nights. Uh, as was my dad. This is becoming a theme, isn't it? Telling you my dad's in hospital. It was, this was a different visit. Um, and I went to visit my dad in PMH, Princess Margaret Hospital in Swindon. And he said, oh, Chris Kamara's in the next ward. Oh, don't be silly. He said, no, no, he is. Go and have a look. So, you know, I put my head around the door and sure enough, there was Chris Kamara. So when I went to visit my dad the next day, I took in the match programme from the Gilligan game and got Chris to sign it. Yeah. And uh, he was very happy to. Lovely bloke. He comes, uh, I spoke to Johnny Phillips of Sky Sports, who's done a lot of work producing yes. Chris's segments. And yeah, I would love to get Chris on here. There's a, I also chatted to the guys in, front, in charge of the football book club who talked about Mr. Unbelievable, which is yeah. a fantastic memoir. I hope you've read it. I haven't actually, no, sorry. I'm, just, I'm not for two now. What books I'm, have you read? I'm not, I'm not. Have you read Glenn Hoddle's book, the one that got him in trouble? No, I read Glenn Hoddle's autobiography, which I've actually got very close to hand, that came out in about 1988. That's how much of a Glenn Hoddle fan I was even before he came to Swindon. I so, think I've got that too. I think I found it in a charity shop uh, in Oxfam yeah, on Watford Parade. I think it was when he was playing for Monaco, and it's yeah. basically just about his career to that point. I was a very sad 11-year-old, and I bought Glenn Hoddle's autobiography and kind of read it cover to cover and loved it. And then he came to Swindon, and I was, you know, couldn't, couldn't have been happier. God, that is, it is like a Actually, well, I, went and got, I, went and got Glenn's, I went and got Glenn Hoddle's autograph the day he was appointed. I was probably, I'd say, borderline a little bit too old to be doing that kind of thing. Certainly, some of my other friends would, would have thought so. Well, but that, he was such a hero, I just went down there like on a Tuesday morning. I have I've followed and, uh, Watford away yeah. a few times, and there is a particular class of fan. I call them the fanniest fan. Who would yeah. um, who would wait at the barrier for to complete their autograph set? But then to what end? I think I've when I spoke to Troy Deeney for something, he said, "Do you want a picture?" I said, "No, no, I'm not photogenic enough." Um, yeah. You are now the assistant sport editor at Metro. Uh, do you still come into contact with footballers, or are you mostly office based? I'm, I'm most I'm mostly office based, to be honest. But I'm. Um... I'm not averse to the odd picture for the right person, you know. <laughs> Such as? But I, I wasn't, well, maybe not so much football, but um, I quite like American football, so I've been to the odd NFL game over here, and if we've had access to oh, certain gosh. players, then I have been known to get my phone out. But, I mean, the, the Glenn Hoddle thing, I, I literally, I've got the autograph book, and it's a Swindon embossed autograph book, which I bought that day so that I had something to get his autograph in. And I think he's the only one in the book, so it was... That was all I needed, you know. I kind of got the book, got his autograph. It wasn't part of the like, right now I'm going to have to go and get Kevin Horlock or John Gorman's autographs. So I just, I don't know, I was just so excited that he joined me, really. Well, here I is... think I thought, well, I can't just go and stand and stare at him. Yeah, yeah. For his autograph as well. Do you know, I have to agree with you because the day that Gianfranco Zola was appointed Watford manager, yeah. he gave a conference at the ground and I thought, ooh, maybe I can see him. So I walked up to the Vic, I live 25 minutes away. And yeah. I met up, I was just standing there and I got talking to a woman who lives uh, in one of the flats above the ground because you can live there. You can live on Vicarage Road. Uh, yeah. And the car pulled up. Uh, he got out and this girl went, Zola! And he waved. So I've been waved at by Gianfranco Zola. Oh, fun fact, oh, he's only five foot three. Very little known fun fact. He's a very, he's a very small man, isn't he? Mm. He's a tremendous footballer. And of course, a friend of Glenn Hoddle's. 
at Chelsea. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I had a soft spot for um for Palmer back in the nineteen nineties and used to love love Zola and Espria. And that was when uh players did go to Italy as a first choice and then the agents got wind that they could probably set their clients up with a another English team. And some went to Swindon. Uh, other managers who followed Glenn Hoddle included yeah. is that Roy Evans? It was Roy Evans, yeah. Yeah, quirky. That was a that was a strange year in itself. We had another a questionable ownership going on then. Roy Evans was the was the manager, was the co manager, and then we had Neil Ruddock on the books as a player. I think probably there was some kind of succession plan in place, but uh, the money dried up um, and they didn't stay around very long. Which probably for the best for both parties, I think. Mm-hmm. So in came is it Ifianora as manager? Ifianora, yeah, former player. Um, dealt a very bad hand to deal with, really. Yeah, but he's a good guy. And then it's who not, we got next? It's not Dennis Wise, is it? It was Dennis Wise. Yeah, Dennis Wise was a good manager. And Dennis Wise, Gus Poirier was his assistant manager. Yeah, that was a good little. They were looking quite good, but I think they only stayed about three or four months, and then they went to Leeds. Mm. And I'm guessing after that was Paul Sturrock. Correct, Paul Sturrock, who did so well at. Southampton yeah. and at Plymouth. Uh, what was he like at Swindon? Good, he got promoted. I remember him coming to Swindon and people said, why are you coming here? You're at Southampton. You know, they're in the Premier League and this team's in the fourth division. And he, he was great. His answer was, well, he said, because I, I haven't got a job and they offered me one. Good. Which I thought was a brilliantly simple and, you know, <laughs> it's kind of a kind of nice answer. So, you know, I was out of work and I wanted to work. Uh, and he got promoted. Really, a very idiosyncratic manager. The kind you don't see in the game so much anymore, you know. Quite old school in a good, charming way. When he was at Plymouth, he famously made their away kit orange to match the shirts of Dundee United. It was his favourite team. <laughs> at Swindon, funny. he didn't quite go that far, but he painted his office orange. Oh, that's um, Yeah, he did, did really well for us. Um, and then went back to Plymouth, I think, which kind of was a sideways move, but we, we found it hard to begrudge him because... They were, they were kind of his first love in management, I think, really. Mm-hmm. And who was in the promotion-winning side? So it would have been, oh, Simon, Simon Cox might have been up front around then. Not quite. Paul Sturrock's son was there. Blair Sturrock, yeah. Mm. He's, he's the one I can remember. He, he was a great, great kind of, without being impolite, he probably wouldn't have played much professional football without his dad as the manager, but mm. clever footballer. You know, you could tell he'd he grew, grown up around his dad and knew a lot about the game and maybe what he lacked in ability, he made up for him being able to read a game and Here's something carry fun. out a role within the team. He took the shirt number of which Premier League winning goalkeeper? That's Twindham. Yeah. I'll give <laughs> you a clue. He was goal. he was fourth choice at Liverpool. Fourth choice at Liverpool. Ah, Andy Lonergan. Yeah, very good. Who took the 22 shirt from Gus Poyet? There you go. What a fun... Gus Poyer had the 22 shot. I don't remember Gus Poyer ever getting a game, but... No, he didn't. Yeah. Uh, Lucas Djukovic was... Um, he didn't Lucas score many Djukovic goals. Lucas Jukebox, as we used to call oh, him. Oh, very yeah. good. He was quite young, but he was one of those guys who... Um, 32 when he was 18, if, if that makes sense. He never had any pace to lose. But um, <laughs> he was a good, good young striker. Here we are, Peter Brezovanla, the uh, Slovakian goalkeeper. Crikey. Ricky Shakes like on the wing. Yeah, Lee Peacock, who used to wear um kind of Del Boy sheepskin coat. 
Barry Corr, who probably would have played in the Premier League if he didn't have such a dodgy back. It's all coming back to me now. Very Michael good. Timlin, yeah. And then, yeah, Phil Smith took over. He was now Western Supermare. Yep. And then some loanies, Ashley Westwood, Ashley Grimes. Uh, this is this is uh, Swindon of 2007. So that's the fourth tier. Um, no, 06, 07 was the fourth tier and we got, we got promoted, yeah. Okay. Uh, and then Storick goes, Morris Malpass comes in. And then some more beautiful British managers, Wilson and Hart. Wilson being ex-Barnsley gaffer, Danny Wilson. Yeah, that's right. Took us to the League One playoff final in 2010, I think it was. Uh, we lost one nil to Millwall, and it all fell apart the next year, sadly. And we got—he left halfway through the season, and we got relegated. Paul Hart came in for the last few games of the season. Was extremely negative. Didn't really—he he, he was known as a bit of a firefighter, kind of manager who comes in and keeps teams up. But he never gave the impression he thought we had a hope. Um, yeah, we, we, we needed wins and he played for draws and it all ended in tears, frankly. Well, Paul Hart is still in a job. He's at Luton. He's a coach at Luton. I think he's a really, really well-regarded coach uh, and manager by a lot of people. But it just it just wasn't a good time. It didn't work at all at Swindon. Yeah. Um... So he's not remembered very fondly. That season before, we had, under Danny Wilson, kind of one of the players who is probably remembered more fondly than pretty much anyone else in the last 20 years at Swindon, Charlie Austin. Yeah, he's on the list. Brilliant, brilliant pundit on TalkSport. I think he will have an he's unbelievable really good, career. as Because he's like he's a really bricklayer, he's a brickie. Got yeah, brickie. he's not at all, this is the thing. He's, um, oh, really? His dad, he, no, well, <laughs> it, it, it depends, you know, it's like all stories, it's open to interpretation. He's definitely worked on building sites, but that's mainly because his dad owns owns a building firm and I, I don't think he's I don't think he was ever exactly on the bread line if you know what I mean I think his dad's probably quite a successful businessman I see who runs a build, run, runs a building firm and Charlie used to help out oh well that, well he sounds like one I still love the one after the Watford <laughs> game the park life um, yeah yeah no skip. he's great he's he's from Hungerford which is where uh, one side of my family's from um, and that's why it's such a great story because he played for Hungerford Town and then he moved down the south coast, played for Paul Town mm-hmm. when he signed for Swindon. And it's kind of career trajectory you don't get anymore. You know, he scored forty goals in the Southern League, so he got got a, got a football league gig. And if you watch the young Charlie Austin, I remember people asking me that season. You know, people at work saying, "Well, what? you know, I see this guy Austin's got twenty goals for you. What, 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 what's he good at? What's he like? Is you know, is he a small nippy striker?" And you say, "Well, no, not really." I said, oh, is he a target man? He's, no, not really. I said, well, what's he good? Is, is he skillful? No, not really. What, what, what hell? He just puts the, he just scores. He just scores goals. And, you know, he has, as he's got older, he's now quite a big guy and he does play that sort of target man role. But he just puts the ball in the net. That's just all he's ever done, you know? He's just fantastic. But he was an absolute cult hero because he was a local lad. I put it this way, you could have found 500 young blokes on the terrace that claimed they knew him or had had a pint with him or <laughs> been to a rave with him or been clubbing with him. And the truth was, probably only three or four of them had, but that was enough, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. He's one of us. To own. kind of give him, give him that one of us status. Do you foresee him coming back to Swindon towards when he's lost all of his pace? He's obviously still a championship <laughs> exactly. striker. Um, we, yeah, I think that there's definitely some fans that would hold out hope for that. Sadly, I mean, my personal view is probably that he's probably earned enough money in his career that by the time 
he is at the level where we, you know, where, where he could only earn what we could pay him. He probably wouldn't find it worth his while anymore, to be honest. No, and he's he's he sounds, you know, I mean, he sounds like talk sport. No, absolutely. When I, when I say that, you know, his, his dad owned the building for, you know, he's not, it's not an affectation. He's, he's, he's by no means like a, you know, a public school boy or something. But yeah, yeah, yeah he, 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 he t- tells it like he sees it, doesn't he? Quite right, he's as you'd expect. Very down to earth, yeah, great we're, guy. 